Eight and nine-year-olds have clipboards up here. morning. Going to be finishing our, our trek through the book of Jonah this week. So we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. Start out by reading. I'm going to start chapter 3, verse 10, and go through the end of the, of the, end of the book here. Verse 10 of chapter 3 starts, says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So a word of prayer before we, before we dig in. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for the word. I thank you for the opportunity to, to dig in and to share what is found there, Lord. Help it to give us all a greater appreciation for you, for your mercy, for your love, for your kindness, which is undeserved, Lord. Bless us as we, as we study today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, for those who haven't been here through the whole trek through Jonah, give a quick run-through from the beginning. So we have, in the beginning of chapter 1, the Lord comes to Jonah, tells him to go to Nineveh and call out against it. He says, for their evil has come up against me. But Jonah, instead of obeying the Lord, chooses to flee. He chooses to flee from the presence of the Lord. 
Uh, we have that little map there. Tarshish was his goal. That's where he was headed to, which is the furthest point west of at that time that they knew of. Um, he gets on a ship to leave. Storm comes upon it. The storm is brought by the Lord. And eventually they throw him overboard after they figure out that it is him. After they have tried praying to all their gods, which was ineffective, they then throw Jonah over, and the sailors give sacrifices to God, make vows. And then Jonah's, God saves Jonah from the sea, but he saves him by having him swallowed by a large fish. And Jonah's in that fish for three days and three nights. Nice parallel to the Lord being in the grave for three days and three nights. He prays in chapter 2 from the belly of that fish. And as we went through that, we saw so much of what Jonah was praying was straight from the Psalms. So many of the different Psalms came out there. Um, And just seeing how much of the word Jonah had hidden in his heart. And you see at the end of his prayer that he has come around. He, He seems to be a prayer of true repentance. And then the fish spits him out on dry land. And then God comes to him again, commands him to go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah goes. He doesn't flee. And so he goes and he preaches. And his message is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a pretty simple message. We're not told anything else that he said. But we see their response, the response of Nineveh. Uh, They call for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And then even the king of Nineveh makes a proclamation for this to be done. And his proclamation goes out to the people, and the people are then to apply this also. He says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So he declares a fast for people and animals. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So even the animals are covered in sackcloth. Everybody's getting in on this. Let them call out mightily to God. And this is, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is in his hand. And he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he does this in the hopes that God will relent, but no guarantee of it. But then we learn in verse 10 that God does relent. This is like the little commentary after the, the dialogue. And so then we picked up in chapter 4. Jonah sees the repentance of the Ninevites. It's not clear. I don't think Jonah's certain just yet that God has relented in his anger. But we know that he has from the last passage in chapter 10. But Jonah sees the repentance, and he knows the nature of God. And he knows that when sinners repent, that God is responsive. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says that's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he knew that if he went, there was a good chance God wouldn't destroy them. And Jonah really wanted God to destroy the Ninevites. Had a few interactions and with people, and they brought up some things that I think I had thought about before I preached this, and then I forgot it as I was preaching. But it's like, so what's Jonah's experience with the Ninevites, right? The, the Assyrians, I've been over, they were just such a cruel, warring people. The, the things they did to those they conquered were just tremendously heinous. And we don't know Jonah's personal experience, 
Maybe Jonah's family was killed by the Ninevites. Maybe the Assyrians wiped out his village, and he's the only one left, right? Maybe he has some personal experience that causes him to just despise the Ninevites. They've caused so much harm that the thought of them being saved just causes him intense agony, right? Or maybe not. Maybe he's just his people, the Israelites, have suffered, and, and he doesn't want to see them saved, right? But there's, there is an experience on the part of Jonah that can explain some of his anger. Um, and Don had talked to me, and my wife had talked to me after the service last night. I said, just imagine somebody killed one of your children, if you have children. How would you respond to that, right? It would be so hard to give them forgiveness, right? To see them repent, to see them receive the mercy of God. That can be a very difficult thing. And so that's, that's a good thing to keep in mind as we go through this. Because it's easy to go through and see Jonah and like, oh, these evil people are repenting. And Jonah's angry about it. Like, how can Jonah be such a fool, right? Well, I'm a fool too. <laughs> I can see myself being there. Uh, we all have that within us, I think. So I'm just keep that in mind. So we left off in chapter 4, verse 4 last week, where the Lord asked Jonah a question after Jonah's anger. And the Lord said, do you be, do you do well to be angry, right? Is your anger justified? And we see what Jonah does after this. After God asked this question, it says Jonah went out of the city. So apparently in verses 1 through 4, where we're seeing Jonah's anger in this the short interaction with God, he is still in the city. But at this point, starting in verse 5, Jonah goes out of the city, and he sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he leaves the city, goes east of it, and with the hopes maybe God still will destroy them, right? So they may have repented, but God doesn't have to show them mercy. They can repent and he can still punish them, right? How often does that happen to us? We have, you see it in the account of David with Bathsheba, right? They conceive this child that is born and God tells him the child is not going to live. And David repents, he's in sackcloth, he's, he's appealing to God and ultimately God follows through and the child dies, Right? God is not under any obligation to do what you want. And so Jonah's hoping, like, well, maybe even though they repent, this will be one of those instances where he doesn't show mercy. Right? Maybe they'll still get killed. But that's what he's going out of the city for. He wants to see it destroyed. And this brought to mind Genesis chapter 19. If you think... We're all familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. Um, Shortly before the actual destruction, God and Abraham have an interaction where Abraham says, hey, if you can find a hundred righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says yes. And and Abraham works his way down through the numbers to where it ends up, he's like 10. Like, if you can find 10 righteous people there, will you destroy it? And God says, no, I won't destroy it, right? And then... You have the account of Lot and his family fleeing. But then Genesis 19, verse 27, it says, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah 
and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So Abraham is going up, and he's seeing what happened, right? And, and when he gets there, he witnesses Sodom and Gomorrah have been just utterly destroyed. Smoke is coming up where there used to be cities. There's smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. So I'm wondering if Jonah's thinking like, oh, I'm hoping to have my own Abraham experience here. I want to go up and I want to see that smoke rising off the city. Right? He, he's angry that they've repented. He still wants to see them destroyed. So I think he's hoping to see that, right? And then just a couple little side notes here. We have, he says he, in verse 5 there, it says he made a booth for himself, right? So what's a booth? I think in a telephone booth is, some of us are familiar with that. The younger ones, not so much. Uh, think of a toll booth. Uh, most of us are familiar. My kids won't be familiar because now they just take pictures of your license plate as you go through. But we have this idea of like this little structure you hang out in, and, and that's what it is. It's a, it's a temporary structure. Um, and comes to mind when the Israelites were, the Israelites would celebrate something called the Festival of Booths, right? So it was the time to, to think back upon when they dwelled in the desert in tents, right? To remember God's goodness to them when their ancestors traveled through the desert in tents. So a booth is a temporary structure. It would be a tent, in Jonah's case, it's probably sticks with some leaves on it, right? There's either in a desert area, there's not much in the way of like sizable trees, but it's a temporary structure. And apparently, as we study on, as this plant grows up over it and provides some shade, he gets relief. So apparently, this booth he built wasn't even very good at keeping him cool because the plant does a pretty good job of helping. But he sits in it, under it, in the shade, seeing what would become of the city, right? And in verse 6 it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So we've looked at, as we go through Jonah, we've seen so many instances of God acting, right? God caused the storm that ultimately had Jonah tossed out of the boat. But then God calms that storm for the sailors on the ship, but God appoints a fish to come swallow Jonah. And then eventually he appoints that fish to throw up Jonah on dry land. God has been has his hand in creation. He has sovereign over it. He controls it. And again, what has Jonah done throughout this to deserve God's favor? What has Jonah done to be worthy of having a plant come up and shade him, right? Nothing, right? He is, verse 1 of chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry at the repentance, right? He does not like this thing that he sees God doing and yet God provides him shade. God shows him mercy. God's an example of God's long-suffering, his steadfast love. That's why I've read Psalm 103 for our scripture reading two weeks in a row here. It's just, I love the way it goes through and talks about God's mercy and his long-suffering. So God shows compassion to Jonah despite his rebellion and the growing of this plant. And it, because it says he appointed the plant. This is an act 
God took. He caused it to happen specifically. And I was looking some like, oh, going through my study notes. So what kind of plan is it? It's not really relevant per se to the overall story here, but there are some plants that grow in the Mideast that grow quickly and that are really good at providing shade, right? So God uses things that are within the realm of possibility, but he also miraculously spurs them along, right? So the fish that swallowed Jonah, was it likely a bass? Well, probably not, right? It was probably a very large fish to begin with, but God supernaturally intervened to cause it to take the action of swallowing him and being capable of doing that, right? He didn't set aside a goldfish, he could have, but he probably didn't set aside a goldfish and grow it to be 30 feet long just to swallow Jonah. He probably worked within the realm of his creation. And the similar idea with this plant. There are castor oil plants that grow... I was reading some things say they grow to be 15 feet high, like within one growing season. And over time, they can grow to be 40 feet high. And it's not a tree, it's just a plant. And they have leaves that are over a, over a foot wide. So they're really good at providing shade. And then there's other scholars who say, well, there are, there are gourds that grow, and they grow rapidly, and they have big leaves on them, right? So there are, there are plants we know of that grow quickly, that provide shade. So, but in this instance, God uses a plant, and he grows it seemingly very rapidly to provide shade, right? He, God is working supernaturally in this area to save him from his discomfort, it says. But in this, God is showing Jonah mercy, right? His long-suffering, his steadfast love. And what is Jonah's reaction? It says, Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant, It's a rather simple and small thing, right? When's the last time a plant made you exceedingly glad? Maybe when you ate something delicious off of it. But most of us don't live in a desert. We don't get shade from plants that we make us exceedingly glad, right? But where did Jonah start out at in this section in chapter 1, right? So Verse 1, it said it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, right? He was super angry over the repentance of the Ninevites, but God gives him a shade, shade plant, and he's exceedingly glad. It seems that Jonah's just like, he's on a roller coaster right now, ups and downs. And keeping in mind, he's happy to receive the favor of God, right? So this plant for Jonah is a blessing. It is a mercy from God. But when you think back on verse 1, but he's displeased when God shows mercy to his enemies, right? Jonah's loving that mercy, that favor for himself, that mercy and favor for my enemies. Oh, no, I hate that. That makes me angry. He's, there's a disconnect, right? And was Joni, was Joni, was Joni, Jonah, Worthy, I'm mixing words up. Was Jonah worthy of receiving the favor of God at this point, right? He had ultimately followed through on what God told him to do, but he had just been in so much rebellion against God, right? He is not worthy of it, just as none of us is worthy of God's mercy. So his, this is not a just anger on Jonah's part, a just anger on for the people 
of Nineveh. But we see in the follow-up, after this plant grows, and after Jonah's exceeding joy, we get to verse 7. And it says, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Right. So now God intervenes again. He's, I grew this plant. It came super fast, provided you shade, provided you comfort. And now God appoints a worm, just a simple little worm. Right. It's apparently a plant that a little worm is enough to take it out. It kills it. But this is intentional on God's part. The plant withers. The thing that made Jonah so happy is now gone. His shade is no more. And this was, God did this intentionally. And I, you see, I think this is an object lesson for Jonah, right? He's received much blessing. Now the blessing is removed. Um, so God showed favor to Israel through the repentance of the Ninevites, right? You say, well, how is the Ninevites repenting a good thing for the Israelites, right? We've looked in Second Kings where it talks about Jonah's prophecy. So the only other place, there's two other places Jonah's mentioned in Second Kings, and then again in the Gospels, Christ mentions Jonah. But in 2 Kings, it says Jonah prophesied that Israel's borders would be increased, right? Well, to the north. Well, who's to the north? The Assyrians. So Jonah, the borders of Israel would be increased in, increased in the area of the Assyrians, right? Israel's greatest enemy. Well, if you look through a timeline of the history of the Assyrian people, so Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, you get to a point in there where there's just like a lull in activity. There's a pause. There's like 40 years where they don't attack anybody. I think that's this. This is the repentance of Nineveh. And now you have, they take a pause for 40 years. One generation takes a break, which is a great mercy for Israel, right? They, they no longer experiencing the war of the Assyrians for 40 years, giving the Israelites time to come back around themselves to God, time to repent. It is a mercy from God that he had the Ninevites repent. It gave them more time. And so you have this parallel, right? This plant comes, it provides temporary relief to Jonah. This repentance of the Ninevites is a temporary relief for Israel from Assyria's violence. But then the plant withers and dies, causing Jonah to suffer from this lack of protection. And so in a similar way, the repentance of the Ninevites is short-lived. It's roughly 40 years, which in the span of history is, is very tiny. And eventually the Assyrians come back, and they do conquer Israel, and they destroy, cause suffering for northern Israel, carry them away. Right? Ultimately, this this little picture of the plant growing, providing relief, being taken away, I think is a good picture of what happens with the Ninevites against Israel. And this plant dying is God removing this blessing from Jonah. This was something God did. He blessed Jonah. It was an undeserved blessing, as are all blessings from God. And it was a mercy to Jonah. It was this undeserved favor, and, and he takes that away. And then you see God steps it up in verse 8. It says, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, 
And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So now that this plane is gone, his shade is removed. Now God appoints a scorching east wind. And there's some significance in the Old Testament to an east wind. Um, Lexham Bible Dictionary, which I've got on my nice little Lagos uh, Bible app on my phone, says, defines scorching east wind, says it's the violent wind blowing from the east, mentioned more frequently in the Bible than other winds. The east wind is described as being scorching in Genesis 41, which would be Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. It's going to be a scorching east wind that causes famine. And it's likely described as being scorching east because as far as Israel's perspective is, it has to cross the burning desert to get to Palestine. So it gets hot as it comes across. It damages crops in Ezekiel 17. It brings locusts in Exodus 10. It dries up springs in Hosea 13. The east wind is most likely the one responsible for the deaths of Job's children in Job chapter 1. During the Exodus, God uses the east wind to part the Red Sea, which ultimately kills the army of Pharaoh. So the east wind is often a sign of judgment and discipline from God. So this, this scorching east wind is not just, well, it's coming from the east. It's, well, this is a God is causing this to happen. This is something God uses as discipline, as judgment. And again, it says God appointed a scorching east wind. So it's not a gentle breeze, right? I'm just trying to think through this as I'm preparing here, and it, it carries heat, right? It makes the death of the plane even more apparent. It's like you you go out to your car and you open the door, and instead of like being cool in there, it's just like you stick your head in an oven, right? You're expecting this gentle breeze to cool you down, but there's nothing there. It only makes you hotter. Well, we, Josh and I, were working a job down by the lake at the end of summer. And I'd be up at my house, and it would be hot and humid, and ugh, And we'd go down to the lake and start working, and you'd have this just beautiful breeze coming in off the lake, cooling you off. This is the exact opposite of that. Jonah's hot and miserable. He's got this plant that shades him, like, ah, oh, nice. The shade goes away, and now the breeze comes in that's like a furnace just blowing on him. Now it's just making him even hotter, even more miserable. It says, the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, right? It's starting to take a physical toll on him. The heat is wearing him out. It is exhausting. Instead of cooling him down, the wind is making him hotter. And so, even in God's mercy towards Jonah of providing this plant, he is now taking it away. He is showing him... Everything he has is from him. And he's trying to, Jonah should be learning. I don't know whether he is or not, but he should be learning to trust God and find his joy in him, not in his circumstances, right? We see so much of Jonah. Jonah's joy is tied up in what's happening at the time. The Ninevites repent, he gets angry. He gets shade from a plant, he's happy. Shade goes away, it gets hot, he gets angry again. And Jonah wants to die all the time is the other thing that you keep noticing in here. In verse 3, 
after the repentance of the Ninevites, he asked God to kill him, right? Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And a plant comes along, gives him shade. He's like, ah, all right, this is good. I don't want to die yet. And then the plant dies. The hot wind comes in. He's faint. And what's he asked for again? He says, it is better for me to die than to live. He'd rather be dead. God's had so many opportunities to kill Jonah up to this point, right? In the, in the ship on the sea, in the storm, after he's thrown overboard, inside of the fish he could have died, right? Walking through Nineveh, proclaiming the message of repent. It was a pretty good opportunity for Jonah to be killed, right? If the Ninevites are as a terrible, warring people as history tells us, it would seem just walking through their city as being an outsider could be a dangerous thing, right? So there's been lots of opportunity for Jonah to die, and it hasn't happened yet. And here he is asking for it. So he had such extreme joy at the growth of the plant, has now turned into extreme grief at the loss of the plant, right? He's, he's on this roller coaster, ups and downs. Then we get into verse 9, and it gives us God's, now we get into God's response. And it sounds very similar to his previous response in verse 4. But he says, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Right? Are you justified in this anger? Do you have a good reason to be angry? And it's not that we never have any time when being angry. You can be angry and sin not. It's a possibility. It can happen. But in this instance, God is, God is asking him that, right? Are you in sin in this anger? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he points out the anger is directed because the plant is now gone. For the plant. Are you angry for the plant? In Jonah's response, he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You killed this plant. I want to die because I'm so angry about that plant being gone. Right? Like, Think about it. How many plants have you ever had die that you now want to die over? If every plant that I tried growing that died, I wanted to die over, I would have been dead a long time ago. Um, it seems kind of silly to think about, right? And Jonah says, he says, I do well. He thinks he is justified in his anger over the death of this plant, right? I, I, I do well to be angry, angry over this. He's not thinking very clearly, I think. I do, angry, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so then God asks him another question, right? I love that as we're going through the book of Jonah. Many of God's responses to Jonah are questions, right? And like I said last week with that question, God is not trying to find something out. Like he's like, Jonah, why are you angry? Because I I have no idea why, right? God is not sitting there wondering why Jonah's angry. He is pointing out to Jonah that in his anger, he is sinning, that you are you have no right to be angry. You are completely unjustified in your anger. But he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Right? So this plant, you had nothing to do with it growing. 
You didn't, you didn't even put it in the ground. You're so angry about this plant, you had nothing to do with it. It was completely a blessing to you from, from God. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night, right? It sprouted up supernaturally, and it died supernaturally. God appointed both of those things, and here you are angry about it. And then he, verse 11, he says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So if you're going to be so angry about a plant dying, why aren't you angry about even the innocent in Nineveh dying, right? He doesn't even point to, like, the overall population. We can look at this number and I've talked in the previous chapters about like, well, we, we can sort of figure Nineveh was around 600,000 people just based on some assumptions on this number that we have here. But that 600,000 is not even what God brings up. God brings up 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, right? Those little children who still don't understand, right? They, they are seemingly innocent. And you care about this plant more than you care about even the innocent people of Nineveh. You're sitting here hoping they get destroyed and whining about a plant that died, right? And I love at the end there, he throws in, and also much cattle. (laughs) Um, Just like, hey, even the animals, right? They didn't do anything to deserve this. They just lived there. So the intended lesson of God's question, uh, verse 10 and 11, right? We, God has every right to show mercy to Nineveh, right? It is his to give. And Jonah is in sin in his anger over the death of the plant and his anger over God's compassion showed to the Ninevites, right? Jonah is sinning in these things. He has no justification, And he claims to have pity on this plant because it's death, right? I mean, he was receiving something good from it. And yet these were the plant came from God, it grew by God's desire. Jonah had nothing to do with it. <clears throat> it was a blessing appointed by God, which Jonah had done nothing to deserve. And it just, I was thinking about this plant and it weathering, and it just reminded me of Isaiah 40, verse 8, which... Cheryl's not out here, but it's like stuck in my mind as a song from all the things she does with the kids. But the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, right? The, these plants that Jonah's so angry about, even if it had lived to continue giving him shade, it was a temporary thing. Uh, the psalm we read talks about the flowers in the field and one day it's gone, and there's no sign it was ever there to begin with, right? It's, it is a temporary thing. And Jonah's angry about it. Plants are not made in the image of God, right? They are plants. They are a different thing. And people are, right? These 120,000 persons are all made in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. And Jonah has no pity on them. He desires to see their destruction, And so, you know, God is asking, if Jonah is so passionate about, 
compassionate about his pity for the plant should God not have pity on the people of Nineveh. If, if you're going to be passionate about pity on plants, you should probably be really passionate about pity for people, right? How much greater is the person than the plant, right? And God has shown Jonah so much mercy, which we've seen throughout the whole book, and yet Jonah has no mercy for the Ninevites. Uh, that last phrase of an all-so-much cattle uh, brings up in Genesis 8, verse 1, and this is Noah in the flood. It says, God remembered Noah and the animals. So this is after the waters have covered the whole earth. It says, God remembered Noah and the animals, right? They're, they are valuable to God. They're, he, it's part of his creation. He made it. He declared it good. There is value there. And I was also thinking back in chapter 3, in the king's decree, he decreed for even the animals to take part in the fast, right? And, he, and the animals were to take part in wearing sackcloth even, right? So even the animals for the Ninevites were getting in on the repentance. I mean, they can't actually repent themselves. That's outside of their abilities. But they can take part in the outward actions, right? They can help add to the general feeling of the people, right? So if everybody around is in sackcloth and you're not, you're kind of feeling like, oh, maybe I should go get some sackcloth on, right? The most recent thing we had was probably uh, the COVID masks, right? You're going out and everybody's got their masks on and you're like, I'm not wearing it. And you're like, man, I really feel out of place here because everybody else has got one on. Um, but this this general, like, getting everybody in on it. Everybody's wearing sackcloth. Everybody's fasting. Even the animals are getting on it, in on it, and you're telling me you, you're not going to do it, right? Even my cow hasn't eaten in a week, and you're not going to fast? Come on. But God's value of people and of even of animals. So God is pointing out to Jonah his lack of compassion for his fellow image bearers. And he's showing him where salvation comes from. Right? This is a choice of God. He, salvation is of the Lord. It is God's choosing to save the Ninevites. It is not up to Jonah. He doesn't get to decide. So it's interesting, the book of Jonah ends with a question, right? That verses 10 and 11, we don't get an answer to it, right? We just, it ends on a question. You're like, oh, what happens next, right? We've been going through this. What's, what's the next thing? So I'll give you my, my little uh, sanctified imagination, right, of what's, what's next. So my thoughts are, we have the book of Jonah, Right, we have this recorded account of Jonah and what happened. Well, who could have given us the account of Jonah other than Jonah himself? And so my thoughts are, because we have the book of Jonah, if Jonah had remained on repentance and stayed in his sin, he probably wouldn't have sat down and recorded what had happened here. Right? He would have been in rebellion against God and would have just continued in that and would have not bothered to record it. I think that we have the book of Jonah as points towards Jonah 
repenting, him being made right with the Lord and saying, I'm going to record this. I want to show the goodness of God. I want to even show my bad attitude, right? Like learn from this, do better. Look at God's mercy, look at his love and look at, it's not all about you. Jonah's humility at the end of this. And it doesn't even mean it was instantaneous. God may have asked this question and Jonah may have stormed off, right? But eventually it seems that Jonah came around. Um, So throughout the book of Jonah, we've seen the sovereignty of God on display. Uh, Starting in the beginning of chapter one, we see the storm comes on the ship, right? We see the storm is stopped by God. We see that God appoints a fish. We see that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out. We see God appoints a plant. We see God appoints a worm, right? You have these extremes. You have this great fish, God controls it. And the little worm, God controls it, right? They're both carrying out his plan. He is sovereign over creation. And we can take comfort in that. We can trust knowing God is in control of his creation. It should give us comfort should give us assurance. And it's easy to read the book of Jonah and think to ourselves, that guy is terrible. He is a jerk, right? Jonah's just the worst. But if I'm honest, I'm probably a lot more like Jonah than I would like, right? I I can be a jerk. I can think I'm deserving of mercy while others are not, right? I was driving home from Erie last night, and I saw these two cars interacting. One pulled up behind the other. He wanted to go faster, wanted to pass them, and this, the front guy was passing someone else. So the, the big Cadillac Escalade flashes its lights like half a dozen times. And so how's the guy in front of him respond? He just holds speed with the guy next to him, not letting the Cadillac pass. And he does it until the other car gets off and exit. And then the Cadillac tries to go around him. And what's he do? He speeds up right? Like, man, that could be me. Like, I, somebody pulls up behind you and flashes a light at you, you get so angry. You're like, come on, I, I know I'm not passing. Like, calm down, right? And it's easy to get fired up. It's, I can be the jerk. I can be Jonah. I can be that selfish, terrible person. It's in me. That sinner is in there. And so, we all need God's mercy. We all need God's steadfast love. Without it, we are lost in our sins. We are that terrible jerk looking out for our own comfort, right? Looking out to make ourselves happy, right? It is God's grace we need. And thinking through this also, like, where is your joy based? Is it based in your current circumstances? Or is it based in God who remains unchanging? Our circumstances change. You experience so many good things and so many bad things, right? And it's easy to say, this terrible thing is happening to me and I'm going to be miserable, right? And, and that's an easy thing to do. It is much harder to say, this terrible thing is happening to me, yet God is good, right? And yet I can trust in him. And in spite of this terrible thing, I will still choose to worship There's a little Alistair Begg quote about he 
ghost visits another church service, and the guy comes out and says, uh, tell me how you feel today, right? And I don't have that nice uh, Scottish accent that he has, but he says, I don't, how do I feel today? Like, I kicked the dog on the way to church, and I slammed my hand in the car door. Like, I feel terrible, right? Don't, don't ask me how I feel. Tell me what I know, right? I know that God is good. I know that he is steadfast in his love. Ask me what I know. Because that is what grounds me. That is what should ground me, not what I'm feeling at the moment. Because our feelings come and go, and that the Lord remains the same. He is unchanging. He is steadfast in his love and mercy towards us. So when life is hard, we can look to God as our source of joy. We use scripture to remind us of who God is. And when life is joyful, we look to God as our source of blessing. It is not from ourselves, right? We are thanking him for the many good things he has given us to enjoy, reminding that we are not the source of our blessing, that God is the source of our blessing. Be thankful that God is unchanging. We see Jonah change all throughout this account. His responses, his actions are just constantly changing, and it can so easily be us. And yet throughout we see God doesn't change, and what a blessing. God is always the same. We can take, can take comfort in that. In the midst of difficulties, in the midst of good things, God remains the same. Close with the word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, to study the book of Jonah and to share it. Um, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you that you are unchanging. We thank you that we can take comfort in that. Just help me to rely on that. Help me to become more like you and less of me. In Jesus' name, amen. If we're not for the grace of God and his love in our life, we could never become what God wants us to be. Because of that, we can let him do as he pleases with us because we know he will always do the right thing. So we're going to sing number 507. His way with thee. Let him have his way with thee. Let's stand and sing together. Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with him within the narrow road? Would you give him, bear your burden, carry all your load? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. Would you have him make you free and follow at his call? Would you know the peace that comes by giving all? Would you have him save you so that you can never fall? Let him have his way with thee. His power 
can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. Twas best for him to have his way with thee. Would you in his kingdom find a place of constant rest? Would you prove him true in providential test? Would you in his service labor always at your best? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the many things we can learn from it, for knowing that you are always in control, that you work in our behalf over and over again. And and we can be thankful for that, that even through hard things, you are ever present and loving and caring for us. So Lord, help us to leave today encouraged that you are always working in our life and that that encouragement might cause us to be willing for you to work. Thank you so much, Lord, for this day in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.